Good morning. Let's take God's word and turn together to Romans, Paul's epistle to Romans, chapter 11. Our goal this morning is to get through verses 16 through 24. I'm actually going to begin reading from verse 1 because I don't want us to lose sight of where Paul has been and how his argument progresses, how his thought flow evolves in this chapter. And so I invite you, I encourage you to follow as I read God's Word beginning in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be, would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut, off, cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, 
How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Last Sunday, I introduced a fourfold approach to this text. And we followed it last Sunday. I'm going to follow it again today. And Lord willing, we'll use it one more time next Lord's Day. If you've got your bulletin, your worship guide, you'll see it there in the sermon notes. There are four headings in bold print. So the first thing I'm going to do is give you an outline of chapters 9 through 11. We can be brief because we looked at it last week. Second thing I'm going to do is consider verses 16 through 24. There are three descriptions of the remnant chosen by grace, beginning in verse 11, going as far as verse 32. We looked at the first description last week. And so what comes next? You guessed it, the second description, verses 16 through 24. Third thing I'm going to do is point us heavenward toward God. Last week we saw that in that text we were reminded of God's sovereignty. Today, we're going to be reminded of his severity. Yikes. He is a severe God, says the Apostle Paul. And then the last thing we're going to do by way of application is consider what ought to be our reasonable response to what Paul affirms in this text. So we begin with the outline. Teresa is going to help us out by bringing up those two slides which were there last week. Here comes the first one. An outline of Romans chapters 9 through 11. You'll recall, if you were here last Sunday, that the outline is very simple, but it is rooted in what actually is said in chapter 8. There in chapter 8, Paul is celebrating the gospel. He is celebrating this glorious truth that God foreknows his people, predestines them, calls them, justifies them, glorifies them. On that basis, Paul is absolutely certain that God is working all things together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. On top of that, moreover, Paul is absolutely sure, he says in verse 38, absolutely certain, no doubt whatsoever about it, that there is nothing in the universe that can separate him, can separate God's people from his love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wait a minute. I have questions, I have doubts, I have concerns. Why? Because of the nation of Israel. Didn't God make Israel promises? Didn't God enter into covenants with ethnic Israel? Didn't God promise Abraham, their forefather, their physical forefather, that he would be his God, and not only his God, but the God of his descendants after him forever? Well, guess what? Most of them aren't saved. As a matter of fact, most of them are cursed. Most of them are cut off. Well, it seems to me, I'm not the smartest guy walking the face of the earth, but it appears to me God has not kept his word. God has not kept his promise. Well, if God has not kept his promise to ethnic Israel, what makes me think God will keep his promise to me? Why should I really be so sure? That there is nothing in the universe that can separate me from God's love in Christ Jesus. That is the dilemma. He introduces it in the first five verses of chapter 9. He goes there again. He reminds us of it in chapter 11, verse 1. He reminds us of it yet again. Same chapter, 11, verse 11. 
in the midst of it all, you see that line, explanation. Really, at the end of chapter 9, verse 30, all the way through to the end of chapter 10, what he is doing there is giving an account for Israel's unbelief. He's giving an explanation as to why Israel has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And there he puts the responsibility squarely upon their shoulders, that they are a disobedient and obstinate people. Why does he do that? He is doing that because he's giving, he gives in this text, these three chapters, so much attention to the doctrine of election. He places so much emphasis on God's sovereignty and salvation, but he wants to make clear, look, if anyone is saved, there's only one cause, it's God's sovereignty. If anyone is condemned, if anyone is lost, there's only one cause, it's man's obstinacy. And so he does not want people to blame God for the fact that most of the Jews have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that section there, chapter 9, verse 30, again, all the way through to the end of chapter 10. He is simply wrestling with Israel's disbelief, unbelief, rejection of the Messiah. But it is really parenthetical to his key argument in which he is wrestling pastorally with this dilemma. He gives the same solution in three places. Chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, verses 24 through 29. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 11, verses 11 through 32. And then he wraps up with that glorious doxology at the end of chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. That is the outline. And so what is the solution? What is Paul's remedy, theological remedy, if you like, for this apparent dilemma? Next slide, please, Teresa. And here it is, his resolution. There is, and this is what he makes clear in chapters 9 and 11, there is, and we must understand this, there is a spiritually elect remnant within a physically ethnic nation. And so again, you know it. If you've been here the last few months, you've heard me say it, I don't know how many times. There is an Israel within Israel. There are sons of Abraham within the sons of Abraham. There is a people of God within the people of God. The covenantal promises given to the patriarchs were never directed to ethnic Israel. They were given to the remnant within Israel. There is a spiritually elect remnant within a physically ethnic nation. They are not all children of Abraham who are children of the flesh. But those are children of Abraham who are children according to promise. They're children by sovereign grace. And then Paul does an absolutely radical thing. This is the mystery that is hidden from view throughout the Old Testament. It's an entirety. But revealed through Christ's apostles, it is what? That this remnant is actually extended to include the elect from those uncircumcised dogs. The Gentiles. It is absolutely tremendous. And my friends, you need to understand that. You need to understand that when it comes to reading the book of Acts, you need to understand that when it comes to Paul's polemical bent in much of his epistles, what he is dealing with is Jews who just cannot swallow that. It just does not compute in their mindset. And they hate him for it. That's the hostility. That is why Paul experiences such animosity from his countrymen. And that's why the church in its infant stage was the recipient of such persecution at the hands of the Jews. 
Why? Because they wanted absolutely nothing to do with that. It turned their worldview upside down. Ethnic privilege is what they lived by. That they were the people of God simply because they were Jews. Paul makes it clear in these three chapters, uh-uh, absolutely not. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Neither are they all children of Abraham who are physical descendants of the children of Abraham. They are not all people of God who are physical descendants of Israel, of Abraham. But the people of God are those whom he foreknew. And this remnant within Israel is extended to include believing Gentiles. Therefore, the solution to the dilemma is what? There you have it. The solution to the dilemma is that this remnant, not ethnic Israel as a whole, is the object of God's covenantal promises. Oh, how far that would go to resolving so much confusion that plagues our own country even in this day. And how much confusion is rampant within American evangelicalism. The solution to the dilemma is that this remnant, not ethnic Israel as a whole, is the object of God's covenantal promises. Therefore, working backwards, God's word hasn't failed. God has done exactly what he said he would do. Working backwards into the eighth chapter, therefore I am sure that there is nothing in the universe that can separate me as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ from God's love for me in Christ Jesus. He is extremely theological because he is extremely pastoral and he wants to impart comfort. He wants to impart assurance and he knows this is going to be a nagging doubt in the minds of his audience there you have it objective number one an outline of chapters 9 10 and 11 you can take that away Teresa thank you we're done with the slides objective number two Paul's second description of the remnant and so we're building on the expression he has used. He introduced it back in verse 5, same chapter. So too at the present time. Note the time reference. The present time. There is a remnant chosen by grace. A remnant within Israel. The Israel within Israel. The people of God within the people of God. And so that which is spiritual within that which is national or ethnic. And then what he does in verse 11 through to verse 32 is he builds and gives us three descriptions. We looked at the first last week, verses 11 through 15. Now we come to the second, verses 16 through 24. Now, were you paying attention as I read it? Not the easiest text going, right? A little wordy. A little confusing. They got big olive trees, branches here, branches there, branches everywhere. How are we supposed to make sense of this? I think if we simply take three steps, step one, two, three, three stages, and just follow Paul's method. That's all we do. What, Paul's method. How does he proceed? And so if we simply just go stage one, stage two, stage three, I think we'll get the gist of it. What we need to guard ourselves against when it comes to analogies, which is what we have here. It's a word picture, an analogy. Something we need to guard ourselves against, for example, when it comes to the parables. You know, you think of Matthew chapter 13 or something like that, is going all crazy with them. 
analogies, metaphors, comparisons, parables in Scripture. They're designed to make one point. That's it. You press them too hard and you start looking at them upside down from, from below, from above, from this side, that side. You end up reading far more into them than they are intended to convey. And you end up with all sorts of awful things potentially. No, the analogies, parables, metaphors, they're given to make one point, move on. Follow the three stages now in Paul's de the development of his thought, his argument here. First stage is this. He presents two analogies, as a matter of fact. Verse 16, here's the first. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. All right? Here's the second analogy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. That's all he's saying. What's his point? His point is, look, the, the dough, the, the, the root, it's Abraham. It's the patriarchs. It's the covenantal promises. And here's what I want you to get. The people of God are whomever are linked to them. That's it. So whoever is connected to them, whoever is fixed to them, whoever is part of them, that is the patriarchs, those covenantal promises, they constitute the people of God. That's all he's saying there. Two analogies. You get the idea. You get the gist of it. But then he builds. Second stage is this. He actually expands on the second analogy. So he leaves the first behind. We're done with it. But he latches on to the second, and he stays with it right through to the end of verse 24. He expands on the second analogy, beginning in verse 17. And he makes three points. Three points, because he wants to explain how these people of God came together. How, how they came into contact with this rich root. That is Abraham and the covenantal promises. So he makes three points in verse 17. Here's point one. Some natural branches are broken off from the root. Individual Jews who reject Christ. He has said that repeatedly in these chapters. That many did not believe, right? There was the Israel within Israel. And many Jews did not believe. Many Jews rejected Christ. They were never truly fixed, linked, right, to Abraham and the covenantal promises. They're rejected. They're cut off. Second point he makes is this, some unnatural branches are grafted in among the others. Because you see, not all the branches were cut off. Lots of branches remained. It's the remnant. It's the remnant within Israel, the Israel within Israel. But now these unnatural branches are actually grafted in among the others. Who are these? They're individual Gentiles who receive Christ. And then he makes a third point. These believing Gentiles share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Get this. I'm going to come back to it. How many olive trees are there? There's only one olive tree, folks. This is not a new olive tree. The old olive tree is not replaced. There's my passing shot at this idea of replacement theology. It is not replaced. It is the same olive tree. It is just those disbelieving Jews are removed. Now you see the Israel within Israel. And wonder of wonders, these wild people, these Gentiles who used to be on the outside looking in, who now believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, are grafted into the same tree. And now all partake, they share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Let me sum it up as follows. This doesn't mean that God has totally cast away ethnic Israel. Just some of the branches. Those who didn't believe. It doesn't mean that God has totally cast away ethnic Israel. Nor does it mean that he has nullified his covenant promises. The promises remain the same. His promises were never intended for ethnic Israel. 
but for the elect remnant. And now natural branches and unnatural branches are together in the one olive tree, constituting the one people of God. We know it as the church. That's the first, second thing Paul does. He expands on the second analogy. And then from verses 18 through 22, I know they look complex. They're not really. He simply draws out the implications of the analogy. That's all he does. He draws out some immediate implications. And the implication is this. Look, my Gentile brethren, brothers and sisters who believe in the Lord Jesus. This is a temptation you're going to face. Here's the temptation you're going to face. You're going to think to yourself, wow, some of the natural branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. You are going to be susceptible to pride, arrogance, generally speaking, speaking, and even in terms of the roots and those branches that remain. Remember, he's dealing with the church at Rome in which there are Jews and Gentiles. And he is heading off something here that he's going to come back to in that practical section toward the end of the epistle. And so he wants to cut it off right there. Is looking down the nose, if you like, of these Gentiles who are now believers in the church and are now, yes, partaking of the nourishing root, the Abrahamic promises. They're now part of the people of God, this holy nation, this church. He doesn't want them to despise their Jewish brethren. And so he reminds them of what? He reminds them of this simple fact that all that keeps them from being broken off is the faith that God has mercifully granted them. Remember how you got there, is what he is saying. It wasn't because you were special. It wasn't because you were particularly lovely. You got there through faith. And remember who granted you that faith. And you remain in that faith. And so he draws this implication, application from the analogy. There's the second description then of the remnant. Third thing I want to do this morning, the third objective is just consider what does this teach us of God? And so that draws our minds to verse 22 and what is a, it can only be described as a horrific expression there. Verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, those who do not believe. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. The severity of God. Let me ask you, have you ever heard a sermon on the severity of God? I'm not sure I've ever preached a sermon on the severity of God. Have you actually ever read a chapter in a book that deals with the severity of God? Not very palatable, is it? Not really what, something we, we particularly enjoy speaking of. Uh, James Packer, in reference to this very point, writes the following. Modern muddle-headedness and confusion. I love the way he uses words. Modern muddle-headedness and confusion as to the meaning of faith in God is almost beyond description. Men say they believe in God, but they have no idea who it is that they believe in. He goes on to give four reasons. Let me share them with you just quickly. Number one, 
People follow private religious hunches rather than learning of God from his word. I think God is like this. I feel God is like that. Number two, people think of all religions as equal and equivalent and draw their stock of ideas about God from pagan as well as Christian sources. Number three, people have ceased to recognize the reality of their own sinfulness, which imparts a degree of perversity against God to all that they think and do. Number four, and I think this is most pertinent to our text. People are in the habit of disassociating the thought of God's goodness from the thought of his severity. They disassociate the two. For most people today, and perhaps, my friend, you fall into this category, and so I ask you to pay close attention. For most people today, the notion of God's severity over here, another word for it, wrath, indignation, and God's goodness, kindness, mercy over here. For most people today, the two are incompatible. They're irreconcilable. And so today, if you speak to people of God as a helper, as a father who winks at our wretchedness and our sinfulness, they're on your wavelength right away. But you speak to them of a God who is filled with righteous indignation towards sinners every day, and they will recoil in disgust. True or not? Oh, that's true. That is so true. My friends, our God is a severe God. A severe God. Now, why do we need to be clear on that? A host of reasons. The one I want to accentuate is the one that the text emphasizes. Because unless we're clear on the severity of God, the true nature of the kindness of God is lost. You see, his kindness shines bright against the backdrop of his severity. And we see that kindness so wonderfully displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see his kindness toward those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see his kindness, lavished kindness, bestowed upon those who stand in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it comes to mind now, I recited it earlier in the, in the, uh, in the foundations class. I've probably shared it with you here before, a little prayer that my mother taught me years ago when I was just a boy. As I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, I love this next line, take me to heaven for Jesus' sake. Take me to heaven for Jesus' sake. Therein lies the kindness of God that he has made provision for sinners in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all who repent and believe on him. Find yourself outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friend, I would be doing you a grave injustice if, 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 if I were remiss in saying this. Find yourself outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no kindness. There is nothing but a severe God. There is nothing but an angry God. There is nothing but a God who feels indignation towards sinners every day. 
Oh, but come to the Lord Jesus. And in the Lord Jesus, what do we discover? We discover that upon Calvary's cross, he took that severity upon himself. In Calvary's cross, he took that righteous indignation upon himself. So that all who now find themselves in him are the beneficiaries of boundless kindness. Do you get it? I mean, do we really understand it? Do we really grasp it? I think it's the crux of what the Lord Jesus was articulating, you know, in John 7. When he stands up during the Feast of Booths. Do you remember? It's the last day of the great feast. And they've gone through their ritual and their ceremony. And then he declares above the tumult of the crowd. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And from his belly, right? From his heart, his innermost parts will flow what? Rivers of living water. He's not inviting them to stoop down and take a little sip from a cup of tea. What's he doing? It's like standing in front of a fire hydrant with your mouth open and the water gushing out. That's what he's commanding them to do. To understand that there is kindness. Understand that there is wondrous love. Understand that there is bountiful mercy. There is forgiveness. There is peace. There is joy. There are all these things that defy our wildest imagination. If only we would come to Christ and drink. But again, I cannot emphasize it too much. Outside of Christ. Oh, friend, 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 friend. Outside of Christ, there is nothing but a severe God. And he does not wink at your sin. He is not blind to your sin. But he is keeping a close account. And a day of reckoning is coming when his severity will be poured out. We need to stand where his severity has already passed. And that, on, that place alone is Calvary's cross, where the Lord Jesus Christ himself died for sinners. And now my only plea as a Christian is what? Oh, take me to heaven for Jesus' sake. Oh, the kindness. The kindness of God against the terrible awful backdrop of his severity. Fourth thing we want to do is this. We want to look into what is a reasonable response. Let's stick with God's severity. Firstly, how do we respond to the emphasis that this text places on God's severity? Preacher, he's gone now, but he uttered these words years ago. Oh, I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid that we develop such dead familiarity with the words of Scripture that they lose their impact on us. We say, Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, but we neither gasp nor weep. How are we to respond to God's severity? Let me give you the contrast. It is the darkness of night that makes the dawn so uplifting. True, isn't it? The darkness, the pitch darkness of night that makes the dawn so uplifting. It is the torment of pain that makes relief so comforting. It is the cold of winter that makes spring so encouraging. It is the loneliness of separation 
that makes reunion so refreshing. Likewise, it is the reality of God's severity that makes the reality of God's kindness in Christ so overwhelming. There's the only reasonable response. Are we overwhelmed as Christians this day by God's mercy toward us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Second reasonable response. How do we respond? How do we react to the emphasis this text places on Paul's analogy? I alluded to it earlier. Let me build on it and expand just a little, briefly. We're going to get into it some depth, some detail next Sunday. How do we respond to the emphasis this text places on Paul's analogy? What has he made clear? He has made clear there is a nourishing root, right? Root branches. This relationship is the essence of salvation. One must be connected to the nourishing root. The people of God are connected to the nourishing root. The nourishing root, the patriarchs. And all of those covenantal promises in their splendor. And you read of them throughout the Old Testament from, one, from the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi. You must be in that. Well, there is a remnant within ethnic Israel. They were the recipients. They received those promises in written form. They received the oracles of God. But the promises were actually given only to those who believe. And now this becomes so apparent with the advent of Christ. And ethnic Israel is, is, is set aside, if you like, and this remnant that has always been there, remember Paul's reference even to the days of Elijah, the remnant that was always there emerges, that there has been believing Jews within the nation, a spiritual nation within the ethnic nation. And then God does something in full, which he had actually hinted at throughout the Old Testament. What was Ruth? She was a Gentile, right? Moabites, wasn't she? What was Rahab? Were they ethnic Jews? And yet they partook of what? The commonwealth of Israel. But now the doors wide open with the coming of the Lord Jesus. And those who formerly were on the outside looking in, these Gentiles who believe in the Lord Jesus, these wild, unnatural branches, they are grafted into the tree. It is not a new tree. It's not new. It's the same tree. It's the same people of God. Nothing is replaced. It is simply the progressive revelation and development of the people of God as we move from the other side of the cross to this side of the cross and the New Testament in which light shines brightest. You know what that means? It means you dare not read the Old Testament without the New. Don't do it. You dare not, we dare not interpret the Old Testament without the New. And here's where so many go wrong. You dare not understand the promises given in the Old Testament apart from God's revelation, final revelation now in the Lord Jesus Christ. We look back and we interpret everything, everything through the lens that is the Lord Jesus. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. Here's a big surprise. They testify about me. 
testify about me. He is on every page. He is in every line. And the promises undergo a wonderful metamorphosis in the light of the full revelation that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promises are given to the one people of God. We, the church, are the chosen race. We, the church, are the holy nation. We, the church, are the Israel of God. All those who are made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a little analogy that might help you. The butterfly does not replace the caterpillar. Are we all agreed? The butterfly does not replace the caterpillar. It is the caterpillar in a new phase of existence. That is what Paul is getting at here. It is the people of God in a new phase of existence. The church, the culmination of God's plans and purposes. This is what he always had in view. It is all he has ever had in view. His people in his son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here's the third point of application. How do we respond to the emphasis this text places on Israel's complacency? That they had a tremendous advantage, didn't they? Paul alludes to it back in chapter 3. They possessed the oracles of God. Gentiles never had that. They possessed the commonwealth. The Gentiles never had that. They possessed the promises in written form. The Gentiles never had that. They actually possessed Christ, who himself was an ethnic Jew. Gentiles did not have that. But so many of them refused to believe. They were an obstinate and stubborn people. Oh, how do we respond to the emphasis this text places on Israel's complacency? Here's what we learn, my friend. Learn it well. Faith is not presumption. They are not the same thing. Faith and presumption are diametrically opposed. Presumption arises when we're convinced that God accepts us on the basis of something that distinguishes us from others. The Jews were full of presumption. What was it they thought distinguished them from everyone else? Their ethnicity. Their ethnicity. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, what does the Apostle Paul make clear? God couldn't care less about our ethnicity. He couldn't care less about our performance, conduct, behavior, the amount and quantity of our knowledge. There is nothing distinguishing in us that separates us from others, thereby accounting for why God has forgiven us. If you think there is, you don't believe. You're filled with presumption. Oh, it is a warning against presumption. And Paul, that's why he gives that command in this text. What is it? Do not be proud. It says it right there in verse 20. But stand in awe. Do not be proud, but fear. And I love John Bunyan's comment on that text. He says, such fear produces in the soul a great reverence for God. God's word and God's ways. It keeps the soul tender, making it afraid to turn to anything that might dishonor God. That is what it means to continue, verse 22, 
in God's kindness. We continue, we persevere, because as the people of God, He preserves us. He preserves us through faith, the instrument by which we take hold of the Lord Jesus, the instrument by which we become the people of God. Do not be proud, but fear. Hear this again. Such fear produces in the soul a great reverence for God, God's words and God's ways. It keeps the soul tender, making it afraid to turn to anything that might dishonor God. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that that description might be true of us. How we wish it were even more true of us. That you would produce in us such a tenderness. Such a tender conscience. When we ignore and violate your word. We pray that we might be tender in heart and receptive to your instruction from your word. We pray that we may be tender in our dealings, in our relationships with others, thinking of others more highly than ourselves. And far exceeding all these, our Father, we pray that we might be tender when it comes to your lavish kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, that we might be amazed daily, that we might be enthralled daily. As we consider what you have done for us by grace and grace alone, truly we worship you this day. And with all our hearts, we give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen.